This podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. In August 1974, on the outskirts of a small Texas town, there was a big sign. It read, Welcome to Huntsville. The entire community waits, hopes, praise. The end was near. At long last, hostage taker Fred Gomez Carrasco was preparing to exit the prison library, the stronghold for his uprising in the heart of the Walls Unit. The ordeal began almost a week and a half ago. Day after day, the vigil continuing. The latest demand to leave the library with all the hostages, Carrasco making his escape with four hostages and an armored car equipped with a two-way radio and a telephone. In a Huntsville troubled by the standoff, in its midst, a Chamber of Commerce sign announcing the community's feelings. And with word spreading that officials were seriously considering Carrasco's getaway demands, grave concern building among the town's citizens. They do not feel that these... uh prisoners or convicts should be allowed to leave the prison. And yet, that's exactly what seemed to be happening. According to Carrasco's daughter, Leticia, one of her dad's helicopters was waiting to pick him up beyond the prison walls and whisk him away to freedom in Mexico. The armored car was to get him to the helicopter. And then the helicopter was not supposed to land unless he got the call from my dad to land. As far as I can tell, Leticia's claim of a getaway chopper has never been reported before, and it's not something I can really verify. Like Carrasco, the hostages were making their last-minute plans to exit the library. They didn't know who would survive and who would die. All were allowed to call their loved ones a final time. Judy Stanley was 43 years old. She grew up in Huntsville, one mile down the road from the prison. Judy had only been divorced a couple years, but she'd already gone back to college to complete her library degree, and she'd just started working at the prison library in May. Judy had volunteered to join Carrasco in his getaway car so the other hostages could be released. When Judy's mom heard about her daughter's decision from a breaking news bulletin, she wept. Here's Judy talking to her family. We're just hanging on. Whatever it has to be, will be, I'm not afraid anymore now. I think it's in God's hands. It's been a long ordeal, and uh, we've had some laughs because to keep, you know, our sanity, we have to laugh. There's a very fine bunch of people here, and they're worth saving, and I wish somebody would realize that they are worth saving. I'm decided I'm resigned to it, you know. Yeah. And it's in God's hands now. Judy had five kids. The oldest was 23. The youngest, 13. I hope they'll always remember me. We'll be gone within the hour. The truck's not out here yet, but we're ready and we're packed. We're so glad to be getting out of this place. I'm just so glad that this tension will end for everybody else and that everybody can go home and life will start over again. Everybody will be coming home and everybody will be happy. And I I wish y'all could be as happy as the other people whose families will be together, but you'll just have to wait another day or two. Judy then gave her children some words of advice. And remember the rest of your life, that life is very valuable. Yes, ma'am. Yeah. Don't waste your life because, you know, it's something you can't buy. Uh-huh. Is that the main thing you feel like you've earned? Yeah, and uh, faith, you know, it's not in your hands. No. And, uh, There's definitely a God now. Yeah, love each other and don't worry about material things, you know. Yeah. And 
petty arguments and little petty things, you know, uh, little arguments that get in the way of families being close together, they're not important. Life is very simple and very precious. And y'all be very strong. Okay. You too. I just hope I'm as strong as you have been. Okay. I love you. Bye. I love y'all too. Teacher-turned-hostage Jack Branch also called his wife Betty. A man of few words, he kept their conversation short and sweet. Hey, Betty. Hi. Yeah, well, we hope to be out of here pretty soon. I hope so, baby. So yeah. you do what you're supposed to and y'all to get out here. Like Judy, hostage Novella Pollard had volunteered to flee the prison with Carrasco and his accomplices. Novella's daughter, Kathy, had been holding press conferences during the siege, she helped Carrasco take his message directly to the public, turning up the pressure on prison officials to meet Carrasco's demands to let him out. Novella called Kathy again. Mom, you know we leave us. Yeah. Isn't that good? Yes. I think it's great, too. I feel real good about it. When you plan on getting back? Fred said it within 24 hours. Okay, we love you, Mom. I love you. Bye-bye. Another hostage, Von Besseda, would also be leaving with Carrasco. Carrasco had even chosen Vaughn to drive the getaway car. Here's Vaughn telling her husband, Buster, which preachers she wanted to officiate her funeral. All right, I know you're not going to like this, but I, I won't, I've been meaning to tell you for several days. But in case something happens and I don't come out... You're coming out. All right, I, I'm planning on it. Okay. But in case, I think I would like Bob Freer. Okay. And I guess Pickett for my funeral. Vaughn, 47, was a teacher. She and Buster had two kids, Claudia, a cheerleader at the University of Texas, and Robert, who'd just graduated from the Juilliard School of Drama, where he was a classmate of actor Robin Williams. We're going on a vacation, got it, ma'am. Well, children, yes. <laughs> I love y'all. Mother, we love you too. Don't worry, we're going to get you back and we're going to take you home and take care of you. But tell Fred to take care of you, okay? Uh-huh. Yeah, you will. Bye, Mama. Bye. Judy, Novella, and Vaughn were all going to crowd into the mobile shield with their three captors. Father Joseph O'Brien was going to be in there too. He's the only male hostage chosen by Carrasco to come with him in the Brinks truck. Remember, Father O'Brien was the prison chaplain who'd volunteered to become a hostage. Ben Aguilar, the prison's Spanish language translator, says Father O'Brien was like family around the walls unit. He was easy going old. Uh, he, was, he was just an Irish, Irish priest. Loved to drink his whiskey and uh, smoke his cigarettes and do his job. Typical Chicago priest. Uh, he was born and raised in the, in the Irish section in Chicago. He, he was talking about, talk, always told about how he, as a young man, he was kind of a, kind of a rough, rough character in, in those streets in Chicago. So but he, he was funny, very, very humorous. But when O'Brien weighed his chances of survival inside that shield with Carrasco, he found nothing to laugh at. So we knew there were going to be deaths. Yeah, we knew somebody was going to get killed. We knew the people on the outside stood the best chance. We knew the people on the inside would be killed. 
and uh, he wanted the women on the inside and myself. So the women amongst themselves decided who would be on the inside. Father O'Brien pocketed three razor blades before entering the shield, and Novella Pollard was carrying a lighter. Secretly, they hatched a plan to topple the shield from the inside, using the blades and the lighter to cut through any ropes that tied them up. But their plan was thwarted when Father O'Brien was double handcuffed to the shield, and each of the three women was handcuffed to a different captor. They were truly helpless. I entered the shield first, went straight to the back, and faced the back wall. Double with double handcuffs, but only to myself. Coming next to me was Rudy Dominguez, facing forward. He was wrapped around or handcuffed to Mrs. Pollard. In front of them, or on the side of them, would have been Cuevas and uh, I believe uh, Judy Stanley. And then Carrasco and Bessida. Carrasco and his two accomplices pressed their handguns into the women's backs, ready to pull the trigger. The hostages on the outside had a crucial job to do. They were needed to steer the bulky shield down the ramp. They had found a volleyball net in the library and wrapped it around the outside of the shield. Seven of the eight hostages on the outside were handcuffed to the volleyball net by Martin Carros, the inmate hostage who'd test-driven the getaway truck on Carrasco's orders. Carrasco and his henchmen, Rudy Dominguez and Ignacio Cuevas, put on their custom-built steel bulletproof helmets covering their entire heads and faces, except for eye slits. They looked like a cross between a medieval knight and a welding helmet. The helmets they got were so heavy, they couldn't hardly wear them. I'm mad the thing weighs about 15 pounds, maybe more. I don't know for sure, but they were heavy. In fact, the helmets weighed 30 pounds each. Carrasco's men had plenty of protection. Those bulky helmets, the hostages they were using as human shields, and the mobile shield itself, the portable chalkboards with thick library books taped to the outside. The shield was also equipped with gun ports. Carrasco and his men could shoot anybody who tried to attack them. They were about to get their chance. From Imperative Entertainment, I'm Wes Ferguson. This is Standoff. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about 
how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford anything, wherever you listen. This is Chapter 8, The Final Shootout. In the prison warden's office, Ben Aguilar had been going strong for 11 days straight. I had to stay there and, you know, man the phones 24 hours. I hadn't had a, a bath and shaved. We, we hardly slept any, you know, and we slept, we slept on the floor. Yeah, it was, it was pretty, pretty rugged then. When Director Estelle brought the Brinks truck into the prison, Aguilar realized the siege would be over at any moment. The getaway car was parked inside the walls unit over there at uh, at the bottom of the ramp from the library. We were just sitting in there talking, and then uh, the phone rang, and, and one of the hostages said, "Hey, we're uh, we're fixing to come out. So tell you know tell everybody that we're we're going to be coming out uh, with you know inside this uh, shield that they had made." And they said. Just tell everybody to hold off. We're going to come out of the air. We're going to come out that main door to the library and go down the ramp and get into the armored car. If they hear any kind of noise, it's us, it's us coming down, you know. It was, it was dark. I immediately called the warden. I told him, look, they're on their way out, warden. So he said, okay. The captors and hostages opened the front door of the third floor library, high above the prison yard. Down below was an empty basketball court and some metal pull-up bars. From the front door, the ramp went straight out at a slight decline. Then it came to a T, where you had to turn left or right before doubling back to the second floor. From there, another set of ramps led to the ground level. That might sound complicated, but it's really not. In four turns, you've gone from the top floor to the prison yard. So, we've got three captors, three inmate hostages, and nine civilians. Seven inside the shield, eight outside. At 9.27 p.m., they rolled the shield through the library door, and down they went. As they exited the library, nobody in the mobile shield had any idea that an assault team of 13 men was waiting for them just one floor down in the prison mess hall. Uneaten food had been rotting on the tables for 10 days, Ever since Carrasco demanded the cafeteria be cleared, the room was over 100 degrees and the stench was all but unbearable. It was so bad, according to the book 11 Days in Hell, two officers passed out. Outside, there were 12 more officers who came up the ramp itself and were lying in wait. And another six guards were responsible for something else. Prison warden Hal Husband's secret weapon. He got all his men together and they lined up. They had this plan that they were gonna they were gonna turn this hostage thing that they call the the the, uh, the shield. They were gonna turn it over with, with a power hose. Not just one power hose, three fire hoses running 200 yards from fire trucks position outside the prison. The hoses went over the exterior walls, through the back windows of the education building, and out the front door of the second floor mess hall. Here's Warden Hal Husbands. Only thing I ever remember they told me is that fire hose will peel the bark off the tree at 10 feet. Maybe the blast from all that water would topple the shield. 
the warden's men could run up and save the hostages. It seemed like a good plan to Aguilar. Well, I just thought, well, they're coming down. I know there's going to be some problems. Somebody's going to get killed. We, we, we knew they had weapons up there, powerful weapons. But we also had weapons, too, ready, ready to use if, in case. If, if we could get them, get them in the line of fire, we could, you know, knock them down. Um, my state of mind back at that moment, though, I, I needed, I, I thought about saving those women somehow or the other. We could just knock that thing down and get, get, it, get to them up there before they, they started firing. And so here they came, the so-called Trojan Taco. You could hear them coming out. You could hear the, the wheels creaking as he was moving along. Jack Branch and Martin Carros were in the front on either side of the heavy shield. This thing was big. It was six feet high, six feet long, and three feet wide. And it weighed as much as 700 pounds. Martin was doing his best to steer. Well, we were just holding it and, and the other people were pushing it and holding it at the same time. But Martin confused half the hostages when he started yelling directions in Spanish through a particularly tight turn. We had a little trouble getting down because we couldn't all fit through there. Inside the shield, the captors and hostages were being jostled with every lurching move. Here's Novella Pollard. We moved down and we got down, I think, pretty well to the first ramp. And then we started to turn, and I think we were turning this way. And the people were being drugged on the outside against the turn. And we were trying to move the thing back over this way. Hostage Bertha Davis was handcuffed to the outside. When making the turn, she got stuck in a narrowing gap between the shield and the guardrail. It might have snapped her in half if one of the inmate hostages hadn't grabbed her in the nick of time. He must not have been handcuffed. Or maybe he just had one hand free and picked her up and hit her over because she was getting squished in the middle there. Then we made that turn, and I believe we had made the second turn. That second turn is where the attack teams were waiting. A grainy black-and-white prison video captures the shield's descent. It's dark at the prison, nighttime. You can see hostages all around the shield, most of them in white inmate uniforms, pushing and pulling the bulky contraption down the ramp. If you listen closely, you can hear voices and the noisy wheels of the chalkboards straining under the heavy load. I told you to let them out, get down to the gate, and then get them. But they, as we were going down the stairs, the ramp, and then the middle floor, there were some people in there, and somebody yelled out, get down. I laid down. I kind of went down like this, you know, all the way down. And boy, they started shooting. Then, absolute chaos. That sound you hear is three fire hoses turned to full blast, 250 PSI, as water crashes into the shield and the library books taped to it. It, it was a crude device. It was a crude setup they had, but it worked while, while it was, you know, moving out. But once that water hit, as that tape gave way, those, those books, everything started falling apart. When that water hit, hit that shield they were in, they knew that the game was up. Suddenly. 
gunfire lit up the night. They were shooting right in the building, at the middle of that thing. There was a lot of shooting, a lot of shooting, a lot of shooting, a lot of water. Then it stopped, and then, uh, then all of a sudden, uh, the, you know, things quieted down for a second or so. Inside the shield, hostage Novella Pollard was caught entirely off guard. The water started coming down, and I thought the thing was on fire, is what I thought. It, it never crossed my mind that we were not going to get all the way to the armored car. And uh, then the sh- shooting started. The pop, It sounded like pops. It was making a lot of noise, and there was a lot of cursing from the men outside in uh, language that I had never heard before and hope I never have to hear again from the men outside. And uh, the water poured in. And I don't know when I was down on my on the ground. I don't know at what point I ended up down. At about that time, I think the water went off. Now, I heard people hollering to the people on the thing to get down, run, row, and they couldn't get loose. Prison guards later said they yelled for Carrasco to drop his guns and stop right there. Martine, at the front of the cart, didn't hear any orders like that. All of a sudden, I saw movement. I looked towards that, you know, to my left, and I saw a door open. A lot of water came out. And a lot of bangs, and then I saw my arm, and I felt something. You know, I had a hole in my arm. Both sides, blood was running out. You know, and that's all I can remember. Everybody's been asking me who fired first. <laughs> I can't, I can't say. I mean, I was scared. You know, the ladies. I heard, I heard a lot of shouts from the ladies. And I saw some blood running on the side. And then, one of the fire hoses ruptured. But then the the, the hose broke, so they lost pressure. So then there was no, there's nothing they could do with that. They were supposed to have a great big fire hose, and they were going to shoot into that Trojan horse. It went haywire, it didn't work. Jack Branch was still handcuffed to the volleyball net, which he called the chain. Somebody came up and cut the chain. Uh, guard, some, some guard. That would be prison lieutenant Willard Stewart. He was on a team of men assigned to go up the ramp on the opposite side. He was right there when the water hit. In the heat of the moment, Lieutenant Stewart was cooler than anyone could have imagined. After that thing balked there, and they hit all these people with that water, and they were all down the side holding on. They tell me he walked back down there like he was eating an apple going to school. Just as nonchalant as a man could be, he got down there at the pinata, took his knife out and cut the rope, turned around and walked on back up. And with all the activity that was going on, there was still some shooting going on at that time. It was just amazing to me that he could be so calm about things. That's why I I couldn't see him because I was on the downside. I was down below where I got Heard, you see. Heard is Bobby Heard, the prison guard turned hostage. As soon as he cut that rope was when I got Heard, when he, he jumped over there and fell on it. That's right. When Lieutenant Stewart cut him loose, Bobby Heard didn't wait around. He jumped right over the rail from the second floor and nearly landed on Warden Husbands. Stewart freed Jack Branch, too. But Jack tried to flee the wrong way, back toward the library. We ran away from it. I started going back up the ramp when we got close to the bottom. And he said, Jack, don't go, don't go back up there. <laughs> Boy, I didn't know what to do. I was going back up 
to the building. And he said, don't go back up there. <laughs> and so I didn't know what to do. I just stayed there. And uh, finally they said, come on, Jack, go with me. Outside the shield, the hostages were freed. The captives on the inside were still trapped. Son of a bitch, here they come. Father Joseph O'Brien was still handcuffed, backwards, at the front of the shield. Everything was going smooth and on the turns and all that. Once the water hit, well, then they knew they were not getting a clear bill of health to wherever they were going, and that's when the shooting started. Once they realized it was a trap. Now, I was either hit on the first or second shot. And the shooting did begin inside the shield. Father O'Brien took a bullet that went through his left arm, shattering the bone, and into his chest near his heart. It went through, pierced the arm, and then right into the chest. Yeah, I heard gunshots. I said, well, and I figured they were shooting out from there, that they were out shooting out towards us, what they were doing. They were shooting the women in there. They were killing the hostages. He shot um, both women and, 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 the, and the priest. And then, uh, then, then they, they stood there and exchanged gunfire with the rangers, which while they were doing that, we were all out. We, we, uh, I came out of the main office where I was, warden's office, went over across the walkway there behind a, a, a concrete wall where I could see what was going on. A lot of gunfire went on there for a while. The shield was still standing, protecting Carrasco and his men from the Texas Rangers and prison guards outside. The Desperados fired away. An FBI agent and Texas Ranger both took a couple of bullets to the chest, knocking them flat. But the men were wearing flak jackets and were unharmed. One of the officers had an idea to ram the shield. Somebody had brought in some ladders, and they were going to use these ladders to push the thing over to where, to where they could get at them while they were inside that so-called shield. And that's how they got this uh, top off of this piñata. They took a ladder and hit, hit, hit that one of them. And I took a ladder and I knocked that off. At first, Novella couldn't see a thing. I don't think I looked. I really don't think I looked. And... Uh, then when the water stopped is when I realized I was down on the ground and I don't know at what point in time we were all down. And the water stopped and I turned my head and I could see it, I think it was Carrasco and he was dead. Vaughn had on a pink outfit and she was over like this and I could see a helmet here and I kept trying to get my hand loose here to push the helmet off so they could shoot whoever it was. So then I worked this hand out from under the cart, and some nice man hollered, you SOB, if you move that hand one more time, you're dead. One of the Texas Rangers had mistaken Novella's hand for a bad guy's. And all I was trying to do was tell him I was still alive in there. And so I stopped moving my hand, just left it there. Then the water came back on, and I felt like I was going to drown. They were hitting right 
at the side where I was. I kept turning my head this way, trying to keep the water out of my face. When the water stopped again, Pollard was confronted with a gruesome scene. There was Carrasco, her captor. He looked dead to me. He was lying there like this. So I think I saw blood. It was a quick look, and I thought, he's dead. And I still, nobody had made a sound in that car, so I still didn't know, you know, whether anyone else was alive. I did not think Mrs. Bessida was, because she was on this part of my body, and I did not feel her breathing. There was no movement at all in that cart, except my head moving that I knew about in my hand outside the cart. When the mobile shield toppled, Father O'Brien had gone over with it, but he was thinking fast. And then I fell on Rudy, and he still had that big old mask on. And I, I played dead, real heavy dead. I think I was sitting half on Mrs. Pollard, but I was kept... Every time the wagon would move, I'd try to move to jar that helmet so he couldn't see. But once they lifted the thing, see, I could feel his gun. And I knew he was still alive, and I knew the gun was ready. He was alive, and the gun was in my stomach. I felt Rudy's hands working below my body. Now, whether he was reloading then or not, I don't know. I did feel his hands working. Meanwhile, Ben Aguilar rushed up the ramp toward the toppled shield. I just decided there was it was there was the moment to act. You know, somebody's got to do something. You know, I wasn't going to wait around. Maybe we can still save somebody's life up there. You know, because I knew there had been a lot of gunfire. A lot of them had been hit. I don't know. It just happened so fast that I I never thought about myself. I I, I stopped worrying about my safety. I decided I'm going to go up there and do what I can. As soon as the assault team lifted the cart, Father O'Brien rolled off Rudy Dominguez. Father O'Brien was still alive. He was shot. He was wounded, and he was still he was still conscious. And he hollered out, "Hey, this guy's still alive, and he's got a gun in his hand." And one of the Rangers came over and looked down and said, "He said, uh, show me, Father, where is he?" He says, "Right here. That's him, right there." <laughs> and he stood right over him. And we were all standing around there, and he, he, he shot him. He took his, his gun and shot him right there in, in, in front of us. And of course, that gunfire going off that, that, that loud and so close by, we thought, we thought we'd gotten hit. I thought maybe he was firing the gun. No, it was a ranger that shot him. We all jumped back like, yeah, I thought this is it. <laughs> But he, he, uh, he, was able to, he was able to get at him before he could do anything more. But it was something that had to be done. You know, those other people's lives were, were, were still in danger if, if, they didn't, you know, if they didn't take care of it that way. The guy was not going to give up his gun. He was just waiting to get somebody close by who could take somebody with him. And we, I just looked back on them thinking, man, we were just right there next to him, close to him, and we'd walked over him, and we walked next to him, and, and we thought he was dead, and all of a sudden he's, he's still alive with a gun in his hand. He could have turned over and shot one of us. Yeah, I pointed to him, to Rudy, to shoot him, and he should shoot shot at my request, because he had the gun ready to go. In just 20 minutes, it was all over. Two of the hostages lay dead. 
Rudy Dominguez had shot Judy Stanley three times in the back. Carrasco fired a single round into Von Besseda's heart. Miraculously, Novella Pollard was completely unharmed. I don't even know how they got that thing off of us, but someone was there with the handcuff key to take me up. And I told them I could walk, that I was all right. But they picked me up, put me on a stretcher, and took me to the hospital. And I could tell them I was all right. And then they brought in Father O'Brien. And I told them, I said, let me get up and get out of here. And they said, no, I was to lie still. Then they brought in Mrs. Best and Mrs. Stanley. And I identified them for them so they'd know which one was which. Ben Aguilar was among the first to find the women who'd been executed. We started uh, moving towards the place where all, all the bodies were and started taking them apart. We pulled the women out of the way. The, they were, uh, the women were still handcuffed, handcuffed to, the, uh, to the hostage takers. We had to undo the cuffs, remove the, the, the bodies, you know, separate them, move them out. We knew that, that Carrasco was dead. He was already, we'd already stripped him down. He's laying over there naked, and then uh, the other guy found out the other guy was was still alive. Cuevas, he he hadn't even gotten a scratch. He was he was he was playing dead, like he was laying there, like he was dead. And somebody looked over and they said, "No, he's still alive." Cuevas never even fired his gun. He'd apparently fainted when the shooting started. So they they yanked him up out of there immediately. Took him out of there. Stripped him, stripped him down, took him out of there. It's a horrible smell, the smell of gunfire and blood. It smelled like a battlefield, really. I went up to the main guy, the Carrasco guy. The, he was shot. I could tell he was shot. His head was blown open. He was dead or in hell, you know. <laughs> One of the ladies was, was attached to him on the handcuffs. I had to, had to go and take the cuffs off of her, or take the cuffs off of him, you know, loosen her move her body, and then uh, we had to um, make, we had to uh, strip the bodies because we didn't know whether they had explosive on them or anything like that. So we had to strip him down. I remember uh, reaching down and pulling the necktie. I finally pulled it loose, and uh, it was uh, was soaked in water and blood and all that. I got it all over me, my clothes, I thought. Carrasco and his men had come to know Judy Stanley and Von Besseda very well during 11 days in incredibly close quarters. Carrasco had even written thank you notes to the women. And then he and his men just offed them, shot them in the back. Why? Just anger and rage because they, they weren't able to beat us. It was just out of pure hatred and anger and rage that they had lost the... Uh, they had lost the deal, you know, the combat, whatever they may call it, the, the, the strife. They, they hadn't won after all. You can't win. We just, we're just going to kill, kill everybody that we, ha- we can, and you can't take it. We'll just, we'll just fight you to the death. It's a standoff. It sounds like Warden Husbands was angry, too. As for the mobile shield, he had it destroyed. You know, they kept talking about that pinata so much, and- what they were going to do, and he kept talking about it. He, he was going to build a shrine to him out of it, Carrasco did, and how the women made favors to him, tried to build things to make him happy. Uh, I had my mind made up, and, and I know I was wrong, 
But I had my mind made up to get rid of that piñata. So, the very minute that it was all over with, and I knew we had everybody and everything under control, I said, load that goddamn piñata up and get that out of here and burn it up. And that, that took all the evidence and everything that we needed, the courts and everything else. But we never did have to worry about carrying that damn stuff around. Although Novella wasn't hurt, prison officials insisted on taking her to the hospital. An ambulance also took Father O'Brien to the prison hospital, then the city hospital. A surgeon told him he was filled with so many pieces of lead, his chest looked like a junkyard. Jack Branch and the other freed hostages were ushered into the office of Warden Hal Husbands. We went on down and sit in the office with a little while. I was sitting in the chair and then... Uh... Boy, Nick kept asking me, how you doing, Jack? How you doing? Finally, he said, you can go now. Uh, somebody out there waiting on you. Jack was led to the back of the walls unit. A car pulled up. It was Betty and Ray, their only son. He was standing right there. And he just walked over to the car and got in and hugged us. He was just trembling in cold sweat, you know, because he was glad to see us, you know, because he was like, he got in the car and he was like, he was just trembling and sweating and he said, you know, bullets were whizzing by him and he'd never experienced anything like that. He was just a nervous wreck. So I don't remember what, after that, we came home because it was pretty late. It was, I think, around after midnight. Oh, yeah, we hugged and cried. Yeah, we talked. She was glad to see me. Ray was too. Yeah, and my mother was asking him stuff. I mean, he was just a nervous wreck. I couldn't go to bed. Mm -mm. Had to get out of those clothes, though, for sure. We sat up just about all night talking. We didn't go back to work. You couldn't go back up there because they had thrown up school up on just about. All the books were thrown about. Law library books scattered everywhere. He had really thrown that building up. Ben Aguilar's wife, Chris, also worked at the prison as a switchboard operator. It was already very early in the morning when I got home, and I was dead tired. Hadn't had a bath or shower or anything, and my wife was sitting out waiting on me, and she made sure that I was okay. She said, you, you need a bath, you need a shower, you, you, you want some breakfast? I said, no. I said, honey, let, let's, just, let's just get the hell out of here. News reporters were already milling around the Aguilar's house, pestering him for interviews. Yeah, I didn't want to be bothered anymore, so I said, let's, let's just leave town. So I said, we packed the car up and drove to Houston, found a, found a hotel. Just trying, I was just trying to unwind, get it, get it all out of my mind. And she, she was the same way, too, because she, she suffered along with it. Also, being on, on, on the switchboard, taking relaying calls, she didn't see any of it, but she knew about, you know, <clears throat> the shootings, the killings. It affected her, too, so. I remember I said, let's, let's just go to bed and forget about it. Let's get some rest. Just, I remember waking up that later on that evening, and everything's so quiet and peaceful. I said, oh, wow, let's go out and eat somewhere. So we did. <laughs> it was kind of like getting away from the whole world, you know. We were together. She was my sweetheart, you know. She was my, I always thought she was my, my uh, soulmate. 
prison warden Hal Husbands remained in Huntsville and faced the reporters. You can't turn killers like this loose on the people of Texas. We're charged with their custody and... and uh... We can't uh, set precedent and turn these kind of people loose. This would uh, open the doors to every prison in the United States. That's something that uh, we all recognize and have to face. And I feel so bad that, that we couldn't save them because that was our purpose, to try to save all of them. We, this, is, this is the thing that, that, where did I make my mistake and where did I do wrong, you know, and we all, we know that, uh, we think that maybe, maybe had we not done it, but we know that had we not done it, they'd all been dead. We had, we had, to, we had no choice. We had to get them out of that building. We had to do something to get them out of that building, and we had to do something to try to save them. And I still think that this is possibly the, the, the best thing. That was our best chance of saving is the most number of people. Fred Gomez Carrasco had gone toe-to-toe with the Texas prison system for 11 and a half days. When Carrasco realized he'd lost the battle, prison officials said he gave up. He shot himself in the head rather than face the rest of his life in prison. And yet... An autopsy report revealed today that Fred Gomez Carrasco was shot and killed by law officers and did not commit suicide, as had been reported earlier. A rumor began to spread all over San Antonio. My grandmother never got to identify the body, never got to bury him. My mother and my grandmother, they believed that he was alive. That's next time on Standoff. Standoff is a production of Imperative Entertainment. It was written and created by me, Wes Ferguson. Executive producer and story editor is Jason Hoke. Audio editing and sound engineering by Shane Freeman and Jason Hoke. Original score for Standoff by Max Baca, with additional music from Flaco Jimenez on accordion. Music engineering by Tony Gonzalez. Our main theme, Huntsville, is performed by Ray Benson and was originally released on the Merle Haggard and the Strangers' 1971 album, Someday We'll Look Back. Cover art and design by Gina Sullivan. Carrasco audio tapes from the Texas Department of Corrections, courtesy of the Texas State Library and Archives Commission. Special thanks to the staff of the Texas Prison Museum for their generous help with research materials. The Corridos, La Muerte de Fred Gomez Carrasco, El Nuevo Corrido de Fred Gomez Carrasco, El Corrido de Rosa Carrasco, and El Corrido de Alfredo Carrasco are published by San Antonio Music Publishers Incorporated and are courtesy of DLB Records. Special thanks to Eastside Music Studios in Austin, Texas, have questions, contact us at podcasts at imperativeentertainment.com. If you love the show, tell your friends, and don't forget to leave us a review. Thanks for listening. San Antonio writer Greg Barrios passed away during the production of this podcast, as did William T. Harper, author of 11 Days in Hell. I hope this show honors their memory. Un año tenía en la cárcel, 
Sentenciado de por vida Tenía planeado jugarse frente de la policía Quería enseñarles que era hombre que miedo no les tenía Se hizo de tres rehenes para proteger su vida Pidió chalecos de malla y casco a pruebas de balas También un carro blindado para lograr su escapada Diez días duró negociando, pidiendo su libertad Si no cumplen lo que pido, muy pronto les va a pesar De a uno por uno a los trece, voy a empezar a matar Desesperado, tratando salvar su vida Se fue sobre una vidriera, sin medir qué pasaría Se le escapó hacia Carrasco, en un rato que dormía Desesperado y cansado, con todos los que tenía Bajó por las escaleras Sabía que lo esperarían, armados hasta los dientes, montones de policía. El reverendo O'Brien, muy mal herido se queda, Gómez Carrasco y Domínguez murieron en la refriega, también la señora Stanley y Elizabeth Beceda. Prisión de conspilmentada, guardianes y policías Aunque quisieran negarlo, no olvidarán el mal rato Que les daría ese gallito llamado Gómez Carrasco Vuela, vuela palomita, párate en aquel peñasco Anda visa San Antonio que mataron a Carrasco en la prisión del estado en compañía de otros cuatro The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.